Our scripture lesson today is taken from the Gospel of John, John chapter 7 on page uh, 1,230 in the Pew Bible. 1,230, John chapter 7, reading the first 10 verses. John chapter 7, verse 1, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here, and go into Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, in the opening chapter, chapter 1 of John's Gospel, We read that when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. And receiving there means they did not believe in his name. They did not believe in him. Now included among those to whom he came, who did not receive him, who did not believe him, were his own brothers who at first thought he was crazy. We read in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, at the beginning of Jesus' ministries, they they came to Jesus and they wanted to take him away forcefully because they thought he was crazy, he was out of his mind, and he was going to bring shame and disgrace on the family. And so they they went out to get him and to bring him home and to keep him out of sight of the public. Now their attitude toward him has changed, but we're told that they still don't believe in him. So today we want to look at what they are now trying to do with Jesus and how Jesus responds. The, uh, the worldly advice that, that the brothers of Jesus give to him and Jesus' response to that. Now, to understand what uh, the brothers are saying to Jesus, we need to understand a little bit of the the context into which they, they speak these words, where they advise him to go up to Judah and Jerusalem and openly perform his miracles in, in front of the crowds. Uh, we have to understand that uh, at this point in Jesus' ministry, it's about six months since he uh, fed the 5,000. We've been uh, studying in recent weeks, uh, uh, about a month ago now, uh, John chapter 6 where Jesus fed the 5,000, and then 
uh, disappeared uh, suddenly from the place where he had fed them, and then they found him in Capernaum and in the synagogue in Capernaum. He talked to them about uh, he's the bread come down from heaven, and they were greatly offended of that at that uh, speech. And many who had been following Jesus stopped following him on that occasion. Well, now that's chapter 6. Now a period of time has passed, about six months. And during this time, uh, Jesus has avoided the crowds for the most part. Not entirely. During this month, six months, he also fed a crowd of 4,000 people with uh, seven loaves and a few small fish. But for the most part, he, uh, he went away from Jewish territory. We read that he uh, went to, uh, we read this in the other Gospels, that he went to Caesarea and to Philippi and to Tyre and Sidon. He spent a little bit of time in Capernaum so that his disciples could visit their families. But for the most part, he went to these uh, other places that were on the periphery, on the outskirts, so to speak, of Jewish territory where there weren't a lot of Jewish people. Some have called this his ministry of retirement. Not that he retired in the modern sense of the term, uh, gave up uh, working, but uh, he he draws back from the crowds in order to spend time with the twelve, in order to give them special instruction. And it's against this uh, background where he's he's avoiding the crowds, he's avoiding Judah and Jerusalem because the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, the leaders in Jerusalem have determined that uh, he needs to be put to death. He's avoiding them, and he's also avoiding the crowds because he doesn't want to provoke the leaders by having these uh, big meetings and doing lots of things in public that would only provoke the Jewish leaders more and make them more intent on on uh, wanting to kill him. He did come to die, but on his own timetable, not on theirs. And so... Uh, he, uh, he has this ministry of retirement. Some people even speculate, and I think there's some uh, merit to this speculation. Not all speculation is good, but I think this is perhaps helpful, that the speech in the synagogue in Capernaum that offended so many and caused many people to stop following him was Jesus' way of, of making time for his own disciples. You know, there's a, a, an expression among uh, Presbyterians called uh, a Scottish revival. And uh, a Scottish revival is uh, preaching out the dead wood, uh, preaching in such a way as the, the dead wood will, will leave. And uh, you get uh, a good solid core then of spiritual people. Well, Jesus uh, had a Scottish revival in Capernaum. He preached out the dead wood and was left with the people he really wanted to work with and uh, disciple, and it's in that context, after six months of avoiding the crowds, for the most part, not entirely, but for six months of avoiding the crowds, that his, that his brothers come to him and say, what are you doing? <laughs> You've got to get out in public. You have to go to Jerusalem. You have to go to Judea. A, a guy who can do the things that you do, they've seen his miraculous powers, uh, ought to be doing it in front of the crowds. That's the context in which his brothers say to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one who works in secret, if he seeks to be known, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. 
If you do these things, go yourself to the world. Go yourself to the world. They're no longer think he's crazy. But uh, they, they've seen his powers. They've seen his supernatural powers. And they say, you need to be, be doing this in the front of the masses. Stop hiding in secret as you've been doing for the last uh, uh, six months. Uh, they're telling them that, uh, telling him that if uh, he wants to be a, a person of influence, if he wants to make a difference in the world, if he wants to uh, accomplish great things, if you want to be a person of power, then you have to get out of this backwater and go to where the people are. You need to make the right connections. You need to project the right image. You need to give the people what they want. Otherwise, you'll be a nobody who uh, has potential but doesn't live up to that potential. Uh, you'll be a person who uh, has talent but doesn't know how to work the system to make things happen. I doubt that there was anything malicious in their advice. They knew that the Jewish leadership wanted to kill Jesus, and I don't think they're telling him to go there because they want him killed. Uh, they, see, they see he has supernatural powers, and I'm, I think they... They were convinced that Jesus could protect himself from those people. He could use his powers to, to protect himself from those who wanted to, to kill him. Uh, no, their, their intent is, you're our brother, and we want to see you become popular and powerful and influential so that we can ride your coattails and uh, get included in that and perhaps attain positions of power and influence ourselves because we're your, we're your, your, your brothers. And uh, so that's uh, what they are uh, 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 advising him to do. Now, John tells us that they give this advice to Jesus because they still don't believe in him. I mean, this is... This is not, we want your ministry as Savior of the world to be accomplished, and we want sinners to be called to repentance and therefore go out and uh, preach to the masses. That's, that's not their understanding. They want Jesus just to be a celebrity, and then they can be the celebrity's family and share in the glory. That's what's going on here. Now, it may surprise you that this advice to get out and uh, make an impact on the world is coming from unbelief rather than from faith. It may surprise you because much of Christian activity in the world today is motivated by the same kind of thinking. Many church leaders in the world today think that uh, we need power evangelism. We need celebrity evangelism. We need entertainment. And we need the church needs to employ mass marketing techniques. Create an event that the masses will want to come to and give them the kind of entertainment they like. That's part of the world, part of, uh, of the church of Jesus Christ today that uh, in Christendom, the people who call themselves Christians, a lot of people think that way, that we want to have an, an impact on the world, and we need large crowds, and we need uh, big events, and we need supernatural events uh, uh, to, to uh, influence the world and make an impact upon the world. There are other church leaders uh, along the same lines who think that if the church is going to have any impact on the world, it has to keep step with the world's thinking. 
we'll never gain an, uh, uh, the ear of the world if they view us as so backward as to think that uh, wives should uh, be submissive to their husbands or women can't be uh, ministers and elders and deacons in the church. Uh, uh, the world will never listen to us as long as we believe in six-day creation. And the world will never listen to us if we are against uh, same-sex uh, unions. So we have to uh, modify our our doctrines and our teachings to accommodate what the world thinks in order to gain the ear of the world. The, the, the whole idea is we want the world to hear us, we want the world to see us, we want to make an impact upon the world, and so we have to uh, entertain them and we have to do these great things and we have to show them that we're not obscurantists who still believe old-fashioned truths, we're, we're up to date and so forth. That's, this is what you got to do to get a, a make an uh, impact upon the world. Well, the trouble with this is that it it doesn't work very well. Uh, liberal churches that conform their teaching to the world's thinking only show the world that uh, the, the world doesn't need the church and that, uh, as a result, liberal churches are dying. You know, the world looks at the modern liberal church and says, well, I'm glad you guys have finally uh, uh, woke up. You've now become woke. You've awakened to uh, uh, the truths of the times and the wisdom of the age and, and now agree with us about uh, the liberation of women and the, the scientific value of evolution and the uh, uh, need for uh, people to express their sexuality any way they want. We're glad that you're, you're catching up to us, but why should we join you, you know? You're struggling to keep up. We're setting the pace, but we're not going to go backwards by joining a group that's still uh, struggling to catch up when we are the pace setters. Uh, The world is uh, not all that impressed by a church that's uh, 20 years behind the time or even five years behind the time and and struggling to keep up. And uh, it's the case that, that God really doesn't need... Big church. When I was uh, ordained to the ministry, which means a long time ago, uh, it was the case that uh, 95% of the churches in North America had less than 100 members. And I don't think that that figure has changed much in the intervening years. And I think it's not only true for North America, I think it's true for most of the world. And for most of the last 2,000 years, that most congregations of Christ Church have less than 100 members. And the author of the article who cited that statistic said, that's God's normal way of doing things. He's not into big numbers. Not that big churches or large churches of more than 100 members are bad. It's just they're the exception, not the rule, because God isn't looking to uh, overcome the world or conquer the world through uh, mass evangelism and these uh, big uh, megachurch uh, ministries. He doesn't need them in order to accomplish his work. His ordinary way of working is through small groups. And uh, that's uh, not what Jesus' brothers were thinking. They thought, You've got to get out in front of the masses. You've got to stir up the big groups. You've got to go where the people are, and you've got to give them what they want. Anybody who does these things ought to be doing in front of large crowds and so forth. 
A minister who serves a congregation of 50 members can be just as influential in world history as a minister who uh, preaches to 5,000 every Sunday. Uh, In God's economy, he's not limited by what he can do according to the size of the congregation and uh, churches that modify their teaching in order to uh, gain the ear of the world find out that the world still isn't interested in uh, in listening. Well, how does Jesus respond to this wisdom, this worldly wisdom from his brothers? Well, the first thing he says to them is, my time has not yet come. And you can take that in two ways. Uh, you could say he's thinking about the fact that uh, His hour has not yet come, Uh, the hour of his suffering, the hour of his death. That's what he said to his mother at the uh, wedding at Cana of Galilee. But he uses a different word here. He doesn't say hour, he says time. And the word that he uses regarding himself and his time is the same word that he uses for his brothers and their time to go to Jerusalem and the feast. And so I think the emphasis is here is he's saying, My time to go up to the feast has not yet come. Uh, You can go at any time, but I'm under certain constraints, certain limitations that limit the time when it's right for me to go to the feast. I believe that's the, the emphasis of his words here. Now, he says to his brothers, you can go. You can go now, you can go later, you can go whenever you want. Your time is is any time, but... I'm under certain constraints that limit my time so that I can't go yet. My time has not yet come. Now, we know it from verse 10 that he did eventually go. But at the time that he spoke to his brothers, it wasn't time for him to go. And so we have to ask, what constraints is upon Jesus that limits his time? And he tells us, uh, you can go anytime because the world doesn't hate you, but the world does hate me. Uh, it's because the world hates him and it's uh, that uh, he can't go. Now, let's just stop for a moment and think about the fact that he says the world hates me. Well, who, who hates him at this point? The Romans? No, the Romans don't hate him. The Greeks? No, the Greeks don't hate him. The Africans? No, the Africans don't hate him. It's, it's the Jewish leadership that hates him. The covenant people of God. The religious people, God's people on earth, are the ones who hate him and uh, are determined to kill him. Now, Jesus is referring to the fact that uh, when he performed his miracles and was doing great things, it incited the wrath of the Jewish leadership, and they determined to kill him. Now, Jesus has come to die, but when he does come to die, when it's time to die, he will make it clear that he's laying down his life voluntarily, that he's not being taken and dragged away against his will. When his time does come, when his hour does come, how does he go to Jerusalem? Secretly? No, he goes riding on a donkey down the main thoroughfare with big crowds cheering uh, Hosanna to the son of David. And uh, he did it uh, just after raising Lazarus from the dead in front of a huge crowd of people from Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, he performed this great miracle, and then he goes into Jerusalem in a procession. 
it's it's like he's saying to the people, you know, okay, uh, you wanted to kill me, here I am. I'm not hiding from you anymore because now my hour has come and now I will voluntarily uh, put your, myself into your hands and the the fact that he doesn't rebuke the crowds that are yelling Hosanna to him, giving him a divine honor, uh, is uh, the fact that he, he wants to provoke the Jewish leadership. He wants to get them to take action and put him to death. But he's telling his brothers here in our text, that's not this time. And I have to go in a, under, I'm under constraint to uh, not let them have the upper hand this time. And so I'm going to go at a different time in a different way uh, to Jerusalem. Now, this fact that the world hates Jesus is something that you and I have to take into consideration because it affects us very immediately and very directly. Because Jesus uh, said that uh, if the world uh, hates uh if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. When Jesus says uh, uh, the world hates him, he's not talking about uh, rocks and trees and skies and sea and, uh, and the beauty of creation hates him. No, he's talking about fallen mankind, the fallen mankind that are mentioned in John 3.16, that amazing statement that God so loved the world. Again, God doesn't. God does love his creation, but that's not what he's talking about there. He's talking about the world that is shaking its fist at God, the world in rebellion against God. Amazing, sovereign love, meaning the, the reason for his love is not in us, but in himself. God loves this world sovereignly for reasons of his own that are within himself so much that he sends his son. And now the son comes and says, uh, yeah, the world hates me and it's going to hate you, too. And uh, why does the world hate Jesus? Well, he says, I testify that their works are evil. I testify that their works are evil, and that's why they uh, hate me. Uh, Jesus uh, says, uh, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light that does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. They hate Jesus because he's the light. And he's, his light exposes their evil deeds, the light of his speech, the light of his person. Uh, he condemns them as evil. And of course, Christians continue to bear witness to the light in our lives, and the world hates us. Why does the world hate us? Well, because uh, we believe in six-day creation. Well, why, why would they hate us for believing in six-day creation? What's that got to do with with uh, condemning the world as evil. Well, the alternative to six-day creation is evolution, that uh, human life is here by accident. It's the product of time plus chance, and there's no creator God. And if there's no creator God, then, of course, you're free to be your own God and determine for yourself what is right and wrong. But if six-day creation is correct, 
then there is a God, a creator God, who is the judge of all the earth and whose justice is not uh, relative. His justice is black and white. Either you are right with God or you are wrong with God. The world would have us believe that there is no God, that we are here by accident and that uh, there is no uh, black and white. There is only your point of view and my point of view and his point of view and her point of view. And who's to say whose point of view is right? But six-day creation attests to a creator God and a creator God to whom we are answerable. And the world hates that. Uh, that means that they aren't free to do as they please. They have to answer to a higher authority. That's why they, they love evolution and hate six-day creation. Uh, the world hates us when we uh, say that uh, marriage is the lifelong covenantal union between one man and one woman. That means they don't have the freedom to express their sexuality according to any whim and desire that they might have. Uh, that uh, we're saying that there are some forms of sexual expression, many forms of sexual expression that are wrong, and only one proper context for the expression of our sexuality. They hate us for affirming a traditional uh, biblical marriage because it means we're condemning them as uh, that we're condemning what they do as evil. Well, they, they hated Jesus because he stood for right and wrong. He stood for truth. He stood for black and white. And uh, when the church does the same, the church uh, is hated for uh, taking that same kind of stand. It's important that you recognize that this is going on because Jesus says the, the hatred of the world is what really tests your faith whether you're going to persevere in the faith or not. I mentioned this uh, uh, Wednesday night, but uh, I'll uh, mention it again today, that uh, as uh, the parable of the four soils, Jesus explains it, that as for the, the seed that was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He receives the word with joy, but when persecution comes, when the hatred of the world comes, he falls away. When I was a young man at college, my first semester of college, 400 miles away from home, not one of my high school friends accompanying me to that same college. I was in a world where I wanted to make friends. I wanted people to like me. And uh, I was an athlete, and there were uh, there was a, a fraternity of athletes that uh, approached me and uh, wanted to be uh, wanted me to be part of their group. And I thought, boy, a ready-made set group of friends. And so they would invite me out on their social gatherings, which were Friday night cake parties. And uh, went to some of those Friday night cake parties. And, uh, and then on Sunday morning, I went to church with a very guilty conscience. And uh, for a time, for a few months, I tried living in two worlds. I wanted the world to like me and 
I still wanted to be uh, consider myself a Christian, although the Christian group uh, on campus uh, they appeared to be a bunch of uh, nerds. You know, they weren't <laughs> they weren't the in crowd. They weren't the the the, the popular people and. When you're a stranger in a strange place and you want to be liked, you, you look for the, the people who are the in crowd. You want them to like you. And I had to make a decision. I had to make a decision. Which world did I want to live in? I tried to live for a time in both, and that made me very depressed. <laughs> well, finally, I, I made a decision. I, I think I made the right decision to go uh, uh, turn my back on the, uh, the keg parties and the, the worldly crowd. But it's not a decision you make once in your life. It's a decision you have to make over and over and over again because the world continues to hate us. And we continue to have to come back and say, now, where are my priorities? Where, What do I want to live for? Do I want to live for him who gave himself for me? Or do I want to be popular and, and liked by the world? Young people, middle-aged people, old people, this temptation comes again and again. And we need to ask ourselves, uh, where do we stand? Jesus says the world hated him. And because the world hated him, it's going to hate his followers. And you need to uh, know that that's going to happen. You need to know that that hatred of the world is a test of your faith, whether your faith is real or not. And that the decisions you make have important consequences and will either bring uh, glory or uh, shame and disgrace for the, uh, the decision you make. Now, we're told here at the, uh, at the end that, that Jesus did go to the feast. And it's important that we know that he did that because he was required to do that. This was one of the three annual feasts. This was the Feast of Booth uh, in October in the fall. It was kind of like our Thanksgiving celebration, a harvest feast. And uh, all Israelite men, 21 years and older, had to go to Jerusalem for these three annual feasts. So Jesus is an adult male. He has to go. And he did go. And that's important that you know that because it's important that you know that he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all righteousness. He did that so that his righteous record could become ours. Uh, He obeyed all the commandments. He obeyed them perfectly. You and I haven't done that. You and I fail again and again. You can go down the Ten Commandments. You can go through every commandment uh, in Scripture. And we've never kept anything perfectly. And we mess up in big ways all the time. How can we ever be accepted by God? His standard is perfection. Be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. No one can stand before God unless they have perfect righteousness. Christ had perfect righteousness. But the good news of the gospel is this, that when you put your faith in him, his perfect righteousness is counted to you. All that he did to obey the law and all that he did to satisfy the justice of God with regard to the penalty of the law, his perfect righteousness and satisfaction is credited to you so that you are counted as righteous and holy and as one who has uh, 
have fully satisfied all the requirements of God. Because Christ did it for you. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die so that you might know that your sins are forgiven and that you are accepted by God. Hallelujah for such a Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus rejected this worldly wisdom and uh, uh, we pray that we too may not give in to the persecution of the world and think that we need to conform in order to be accepted. We pray, Father, that you would help us to make right decisions that honor you and show that we believe in Jesus. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.